You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning. My name is Butch Coley. Let me give you some context if you're uh, joining us through uh, live streaming this morning. We at First Baptist are in the process of having more than one pastor. Uh, We are adding lay people to serve and shepherd God's flock. In that process, those who are nominees, such as myself, are preaching before the congregation. So why I am here this morning is partly because I am nominee. But the other reason that I am here this morning, I think, is to give testimony of the power of Christ to work in the individual life. And that message all of us share together. So let's pray before we open God's word. Father, we are the clay and you are the potter. Sovereign ordering all things, that your glory will be proclaimed throughout eternity by redeemed people. Oh, how we thank you for the gospel. Water to quench the thirst of lost souls. Bread for the nourishment of the redeemed. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, he who holds all things together and lives that we may be at peace with God. Amen. It is a deeply divided time. Authority is viewed with suspicion. Leadership is maligned and mistrusted. The moral fabric is so shaken that the roles of men and women are debated in the marketplace. Human worth is trampled on with the boots of uh, hatred of marriage and racial prejudice. The church fails to apply its discipline even in the most egregious of cases. The wealthy are lionized, the poor are neglected, and theology has become, for some, more about making me feel better about myself and the pandering to my needs than about a study of the God who is revealed in his word. Anxiety and chaos are at the door. It sounds contemporaneous, doesn't it? But, and it certainly could be, but I'm really describing a condition in the mid-50s AD, the church in Corinth, true to them, true to us today. I invite you to open your Bible and turn 
to 2 Corinthians. If you're listening at home, go and get it. You're going to need it. Second Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's after the four Gospels. You have Acts, you have Romans, Passover, 1 Corinthians. Boom, you're there at 2 Corinthians. Now go to chapter 5. And let's start at verse 14. And we're going to read to chapter 6, verse 2. I invite you to stand as we read God's word. We oftentimes do that in church, don't we? We can do it at home today, too. Because there is no Facebook post, no live chat, nothing that you will read today will be of a consequence of God's word that you absorb into your heart and life. Food for the soul. Beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you to, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As an overarching observation... Notice that these verses present the gospel message and call us to response. Some will make much of the times. You and I today can make much of the gospel. In a time in Corinth when there were 
enormous problems in the body and in which the church was under attack from both within and without. What does Paul return to? He returns to the message of the gospel that peace has come through Jesus Christ. Just in these verse, just in the preceding verses, Paul has been discussing how believers live in this world, but know that we have, in verse 1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Or he has comforted God's people in verse 7 by saying, we walk by faith, not by sight. Or in the latter half of verse 9, he has said, we make it our aim to please him. It's the same kind of word that's used in Titus 2.9 that describes how a slave pleases his master. Those who are under the power of the gospel are utterly devoted to Christ. Their lives have been changed by him. Jesus is meant to be the saturation to every particle of our being. And for that to take place, we must know who he is, what he has done, and that we must accept him on his terms, not ours, as Lord and Savior. He says very clearly in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 bears witness, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'd like for us to consider three great truths, I think, in this passage that are told about reconciliation today. First, reconciliation is the work of God. We need to be reconciled to God. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. It's on our part that reconciliation must take place. And it's his work that makes that possible. Two, Reconciliation, although it is the work of God, is a message that has been entrusted to redeemed people. Think about that, that the most powerful, beautiful, life-changing thing that you and I will hear in our lives is not on, that we're not only the recipients of that, but that we are entrusted with that message to tell others. Three, the time for reconciliation is now. First, let's consider that reconciliation is the work of God. Uh, And let's examine the word and its meaning. Why do we need to be reconciled? Well, reconciliation would assume that there has been conflict 
that there's been division, that there is a lack of unity. And two equal parties in a worldly sense might come to reconciliation. They might agree on peace, as we see between nations, uh, nations, or as we might think of between individuals that have had a disagreement. But the reconciliation that we're talking about in Scripture is different from that. It's not equal partners coming to reconciliation. It's a stronger party, God, dealing with a weaker party, man. And the weaker party needs to be reconciled to a holy God. The example is worldly, but maybe it'll help us to understand where we're aiming for this morning. You're a tenant, you can't pay your rent, and you get a notice from the landlord. Pay up, suffer the penalty, and you go to the landlord and you describe your condition. And maybe the landlord is merciful. He takes pity. What could he do? He might forgive a portion of the rent. He might forgive everything. You might work out terms. What happens to you if there's resolution? You stay. Your home has not been pulled out from underneath you. Notice in the example how what needs to be done has to be resolved by the stronger party. And the weaker party is the recipient of all the work of the stronger party. So in building a meaning to reconciliation, we understand that there is a gulf and a separation an estrangement between us and God, and that what God does in reconciliation is he brings peace to us. But a biblical definition of reconciliation is not just about peace. It's also about resolving enmity, resolving hatred, bitterness, Go to Romans 5 for a moment, verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, we have a description of who we are before God. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or in verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or in verse 9, since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or verse 10 nails it, doesn't it? For if while we were sinners, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Our condition is not just that sin separates, but God's wrath is kindled against disobedience and our ruptured relationship to him. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. If God is perfect and righteous, how do we resolve his wrath against sin, his justice, and his mercy? How can they all be perfectly arrayed, the hope and marvel of man, confounding all earthly wisdom, soaring beyond our ability to conceive or imagine? This is the dilemma and hope of reconciliation. Holy God, unchanging, sinful man, changed beyond recognition. Calvin got it right in describing our condition. He said, for as iniquity is, as, is abominable to God, so neither can the sinner find grace in his sight so far as he is and so long as he is regarded as a sinner. Thence, whenever sin is, there also are the wrath and vengeance of God. Understanding our dilemma, then, let us look at three things within the text this morning about the first point that I have, God's great work of reconciliation. And let's go to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. God loved us first. In individualistic, me culture, we want to make much of our love for Christ. But what's the record of Scripture? Matthew 9.36 tells us that when he saw the crowd, speaking of Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Has that been your condition this week? Come to the Savior. Have you ever played that silly game, I love you more? Come to think of it, maybe that's why I'm still single. I think it's a silly game. <laughs> Jesus loves you more than you love him. What is in view in the verse is the love of the Savior that controls us. And the us is Paul, the believer, you and me, 
all who have experienced God's love. The Savior, fully God, entered into our humanity. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what's in view in John 3.16, isn't it, too? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look at the outcome of God's love for us in verse 15. And he died for us so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Believers surrender their authority to live for him whose authority is perfectly good and wonderful. Paul said earlier in verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. That takes place because Christ has entered into the life of the individual. Notice how it doesn't speak to ambition. It says aim. Aim speaks to pursuit, to following, to direction. God loved us first. Before we ever knew him, when we walked according to our own way, Scripture testifies to his love for us. Second, note in the passage this morning, he paid the debt for my sin. Verse 19 says, not counting their sins against them. Or in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross willingly, bearing all my sin. God poured out his wrath on his beloved son, who was completely righteous. Verse 15 says that for their sake he died and was raised. His resurrection is the triumph of God over sin and death and the future hope of our being with him in eternity. Christ's righteousness has covered my sin. When God looks at me, he sees his righteous son. So not only does God love us first, Jesus paid the debt for my sin, but thirdly, in this picture of God's completed work of reconciliation, let me call your attention to the fact that All those whom he redeems are a new creation. Go to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
Sin's bondage has been broken. Verse 14 said that one has died, therefore all have died. God's great work is not just that he has saved you and me, but that my perseverance in my growth in Christ has been assured by the work of the Son on the cross. Romans eight twenty nine through 30. Turn to it for just a moment. Let's look at that passage. To see and view... The new creation achieved by Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See the controlling love of the Savior. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. God knew in eternity past all those who would come to him, and he has given us in Christ, Christ's righteousness before him. We have been purified, justified, sanctified in his sight. The passage that we're looking at this morning has antecedents in Isaiah 43 and in Isaiah 66. Let's briefly look at those passages. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. See, there's that new creation. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? Or go to... Isaiah 66, verse 22, the last chapter of Isaiah. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. What was promised in Isaiah is being fulfilled in the completed work of Christ. The new creation, the believer who is reborn by the justifying, sanctifying work of Christ is the promise of the future new creation that will be revealed in eternity. We are not only 
to be transformed in this life by the Savior, but we will be redeemed and completely purified in the life to come. Two, let's consider for a moment that reconciliation is a message entrusted to God's redeemed people. Only God saves, but he has chosen to allow us a testimony to his redemptive work. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is so prevalent in our thinking this morning. Jesus, who holds all authority, who calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And how long is he with us to the end of the age? That passage cannot be about just the apostles, but must include every believer who has been called to Christ. The work envisioned, the message of reconciliation, is the responsibility and the privilege of all those who are redeemed. The message we see, though, is God's. It's not ours to change. It's his to flow through us. But you and I are, have been given the appeal, the passage says. We are the ambassadors. Ambassadors have no message of their own. They speak the words of those who sent them. And that is the message we have to speak to a lost, deceived world. Christ has come to reconcile us to God. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.4 said, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. He will refine his message in us. And that message we have the pleasure to tell to those around us. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, working together with him, we are under the saving work of Jesus. We are to be working as well. We work for the night comes. Paul cautions us in in chapter 6, verse 1, not to accept the grace of God in vain. The picture is that of someone who has somehow missed the the message of reconciliation. Corinth, just like every church, has wheat and tares, believers and unbelievers in attendance together. I think what Paul is saying to us is that and for us to heed today, is that to the believer, don't be immature. Study the scripture. Live under the grace and power of the gospel. Allow the spirit to guide you. And to the unbeliever is being said, confess your sin and repent. Turn to the Savior. 
Don't harden your heart to the message. So we have God's great work of reconciliation. We have a message that is entrusted to us. We have a message that is for today. In 6 1, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49 8. Or 6 2, rather. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The passage that Paul uses is a passage on the suffering servant. And we know that these passages speak of God's servant, and ultimately those passages speak of Christ. I think we can see this rather clearly in Acts 8, 28. Turn to that for a moment. Will. It's a very familiar story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But I think it gives us insight into the message for today. Verse 28, and he, speaking of the eunuch, was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Or of someone else. And here's our verse. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. And he told the good news of Jesus. You and I like the Corinthians. Have heard the good news. For some, the acceptable time has come. They have embraced the Savior. Oh, how God helped us on the day of salvation. Do you remember that day when he reached down and brought you to saving grace? And today, now is the time to surrender to him, to live it out, in a culture, a people, a person who who desperately needs reconciliation. Let me close with a prayer from the Puritans 
It had a capacity to move us in an age in which we're not given much to words. But it speaks of the grace and the power of the gospel. It's called, O Source of All Good, and it's entitled, The Gift of Gifts. O Source of All Good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts, thine own dear Son, begotten, not created, my Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute, his self-emptying, incomprehensible, his infinity of love, Beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wisdom of wonders. He came below to raise me above, was born like me, that I might become like him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissolvable unity, the uncreated and the created. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost, as man to die for my death to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out the perfect righteousness for me. O God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy and hearing believe, rejoice, praise, adore. My conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, my eyes uplifted to a reconciled father, place me with ox, ass, camel, goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in him account myself delivered from sin. Let me, like Simeon, clasp the newborn child to my heart, and embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give no more. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.